0: Yeah. It's okay. Once I get yeah. worked so up and start table pounding, just it'll be bit. okay. Yeah. yeah. you want a Cheryl Samburger? Yeah.
2: Hello and welcome to witch Please, a Fortnightly Podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Hannah McGregor. I'm Marcel Cosman.
0: And I'm Andrea Hazenbank.
1: That's right, witches. Andrea is joining us today for part two of our discussion of the fourth book in the Harry Potter series, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. In addition to being a dear friend, Andrea is also a scholar of labor history, and she's going to help us work through the very complicated business of house elves in the wizarding world.
2: But before we can sneak into the kitchen and foment revolution, let's get ourselves organized in the sorting chat. So, we have a few things we want to talk about, but I need to start with what has become my new personal segment which is a rope watch because <laughs> I've become like unhealthily obsessed with the status of the clothing in the wizarding world
1: uh unhealthily obsessed with the status of what is underneath the yeah. robes let's it's let's be a specific you're coming creepy. through that
0: we're concerned about <laughs> that's a really swinging under there thinking
2: about kilts thinking about sporons thinking about dick purses i don't even know <laughs> just very uncomfortable and andrea pointed out i don't want to give it away because it is a book five spoiler but andrea pointed out that there's some very important new information provided for us in the half-blood prince but in the meantime i order have... of
1: the phoenix order of the phoenix mm-hmm.
0: it is order of the phoenix order of yes. the phoenix
2: mm-hmm. in the meantime i want to point out two brief things one the point where barty crouch senior shows up on the hogwarts land grounds Yes. <laughs> Grounds. Um, and he's all like flustered and disheveled. And it says that the knees of his robes are torn. So I just need you all to think about that. I'm not going to say anything more except that robes have knees now. And two, there is a point where Harry is, it's before one of the tasks and he's feeling really overwhelmed. And it says that he is so distracted they he puts his hat on his foot instead of a sock. And what struck me there, I mean, nobody's ever been that distracted. (laughs) But more importantly, apparently they're wearing hats. (laughs) The end.
1: I don't know why you're surprised that they're wearing hats, because in so many, like so many of the adult wizards are wearing hats, right? I think it's just the movies
0: that write the hats out, Mm -hmm. but they're definitely wearing hats all the time as adults. I just feel like there's a missed opportunity to introduce dunce caps into the equation. Like, can you not imagine Snape slapping a pointed dunce cap on Mm -hmm. Harry Potter? Like, if they're wearing hats anyway, why not go full throttle?
1: Yeah, and if you're verbally abusing students anyway, you might as well, like, throw a little bit of public shaming into that.
0: Yeah. But wizard hats already look
1: like dunce caps. Yeah,
0: but without a brim. Dunce caps don't have a brim. The wizarding hats? So they're silly.
2: (laughs) Supposed to regular wizarding hats, which are serious business. Mm -hmm. The only other thing that I would like to mention is, you know, this is the book where we finally meet Voldemort in person, and it's so, like, I had to stop reading last night because I had plans with friends, and it's not okay to cancel your (laughs) plans with your friends to read a Harry Potter book
0: Saturday
2: night. Yeah, the. sentence I left on was, Lord Voldemort had risen again. And I was like, oh, holy shit. Oh, my God, we're finally going to see Voldemort. This is going to be so intense. And then I returned later that night to read the rest of the book. And what struck me was, one, Voldemort is not actually particularly scary as a villain at this point. Um, And two, he is a total bitch. Because the first thing he does... After just being like, just, he's mean in the way, in a very bullying way, which is not scary. I think maybe it's scarier for kids, it's not scary as an adult. Mm -hmm. Um, So he just like hurts people for a while, which is like, I mean, it's like not nice. Swinging his villain
0: dick around. Yeah,
2: swinging his big swinging Voldemort dick. But then the next thing he does is give like a 47 page speech (laughs) where he like recaps everything that has happened to him, to all of the gathered death eaters and it is the most passive aggressive (laughs) bitchy speech possible so i'm going to read you just one passage from it which is i returned to my hiding place far away and i will not pretend to you that i didn't then fear i might never regain my powers yes that was perhaps my darkest hour i could not hope that i would be sent another wizard to possess and i had given up hope now that any of my death eaters cared what had become of me me you are the most powerful dark wizard in the world you gather your death eaters together for the first time and what you were spending your time doing is being like and then i was all alone and nobody <laughs> cared nobody even called to see if i was okay
1: <laughs> like voldemort is a 16
2: year old girl the end
1: While we're on the theme of passive aggression in book four, uh, which I think is really appropriate given what a big deal puberty is in this book, I really want to talk about Ron's passive aggression towards Hermione at the Yule Ball. um, Because I have a theory which sort of follows more or less on our conversation from the last episode about um, the fact that queer sexuality is completely written out of these books. There's no actual queer characters. I know that Rowling came at later and was like, "Oh no, Dumbledore is super gay." But nobody believes that because there's no evidence for it. If there isn't textual evidence, you can't actually just be like,
0: "No, like he was super into like Grindelwald or whatever." We do not care about authorial intention here.
1: No. At No, just because you intended him to be gay does not mean that you wrote him as a queer character. I was really interested in rereading these books how much Ron loves Victor Crumb. He's got
0: his little action figure (laughs) of him and he flies around and he loves it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Ron loves Victor Crumb. And I know that he...
2: Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Commence Obliviate in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1.
1: He and Hermione end up together later on. But when he's really pissed to see them together at the Yule Ball, it reads like he's mad at Hermione (laughs) being on a date with Victor Crumb. (laughs) Ron Mm -hmm. is super in love with Victor Crumb. I think it's really shitty that this gets written into a kind of phase because of his eventual heterosexuality Mm -hmm. that gets depicted in the later books. But he is nevertheless deeply, deeply, deeply erotically charged for Victor Crumb. I'm like, who wouldn't be? Am I right, ladies? Like, that hooked nose and those oh. slouchy shoulders. And the part where he's, like,
2: pigeon-toed and, like, oh, yeah. can't quite walk right. Yes, oh, yeah. And that
0: beetle brow. and oh, yeah. yeah. His, yeah. you know, nonverbal communication. mm mm-hmm, yeah. So hot. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Yeah, the way he, like... For one thing, is dating a fourteen-year-old when he's eighteen, which <laughs> is um, like gross and I think maybe illegal in Canada at least. Now, it is now the wizarding world.
1: It is now, it wouldn't have been at the time that the books were published and released in Canada. The right. age of consent was increased to sixteen relatively recently. Cool. Somebody recently
2: said um, age of consent is the kind of thing where if you have to wonder about whether or not you're breaking the law, you're already doing something wrong. <laughs>
1: Hey, Andrea, did you know that an understanding of the materiality and circulation of print culture is fundamental to theorizing the complex histories of the labor movement? Let's head to Flourish and Blutz and talk about the Harry Potter books as
0: physical objects. So I know you have both spoken extensively about your relationships to the series and its sort of material things. And I have to say, having listened to you both before I started rereading this series really made me check the dates of publication, really made me sort of like meditate on my reading rainbow experience.
2: (laughs) Take a look, it's in a book.
0: Yes. So I checked the date of publication on this. And so Goblet of Fire came out in 2000. And I remember this one being the first of the series that I read when it came out properly. Mm -hmm. So I first came to Harry Potter through my youngest sister, who is about seven years younger than me. So someone had given her the whole first three in that box set that I think everyone got. And she really, really enjoyed them. And then because at the time I would read anything lying around, I picked them up and read them. And then enjoyed them. And so when she got the fourth one, I have this distinct experience of there being two bookmarks chasing their way through the book (laughs) and her getting so pissed that I kept picking it up and reading ahead of her. She would have been about 10 at the time of this book. Oh, you were so much
2: better at reading than her. (laughs) So angry at
0: me. Almost everyone in our house read this book. I know my other, my middle sister read it and I'm pretty sure my mom read it too, but I do know that this was the one we all fought over the copy And by Order of the Phoenix, we all ordered our own copy. So we each had a number five book and carried on from there. So I remember that very clearly. The book's so good you can't share. Oh, no, no, no. I don't own a copy of this book. I own copies of five, six, and seven. And so when I was rereading this series, I've been reading it off of iBooks on my iPad, which is a very different experience. These versions do have all the illustrations, which is kind of nice. Um, They've got the little... The what? The sorry who? (laughs) The pictures, the illustrations. There there are no pictures in this book. What? This book is
2: not an illustrated book.
0: (laughs) Oh, mine is... Mine this is irritated! I was talking See, about. Look,
1: there's pictures. Oh, it's the American. You can tell by yeah. the thing. Mm-hmm. Oh,
2: that means so, so. I got these little images at the beginning she, of each chapter. If Andrea is reading the American one, that means in addition to having all of this paratext that, as we know in the last episode, upset Marcel enormously, <laughs> it also means that ostensibly they've changed the word jumper to sweater and the word pudding to dessert.
0: No, jumper and pudding still exist in this version. What? been Told so
2: many lies There's about American readers, and
0: pudding, but there is illustrations at the head of each chapter. I hate it, which suggests to me that the ebook version is some unholy hybrid. Oh, uh, yeah,
2: <laughs> you listeners. I know this is an audio medium, but you should see Marcel's face, it is a portrait in horror.
0: <laughs> so, my reading version looks uncharacteristically clean Mm -hmm. which is very Mm -hmm. unlike me and I've had Mm -hmm. to put all my notes on separate sheets like some kind of I don't know amateur
2: (laughs) no marginalia for you no
0: marginalia for me hey
2: Andrea (laughs) hey when I tell you you're unreliable it isn't because I don't trust you it's just because I understand how narrative works (laughs) And because it's time for the boy who narrated.
1: I want to talk a little bit about the way that Harry perceives Madame Maxine and um, and Professor Karkaroff. So let's start with Madame Maxine. This is when uh, uh, the carriage from Beaubaton arrives at Hogwarts. Harry had only ever seen one person as large as this woman in his life, and that was Hagrid. He doubted whether there was an inch difference in their heights, yet somehow Maybe simply because he was used to Hagrid, this woman, now at the foot of the steps and looking around at the waiting wide-eyed crowd, seemed even more unnaturally large. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) Even though Harry is aware that Madame Maxine and Hagrid would not even have an inch difference in height... There's something about a woman who is as enormous as Hagrid that is so disturbing to Harry that she appears to be unnatural. Hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> so, there's, so there's that. That's, that's actually... <laughs> <again>. Oh! Oh! <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> and then what I want to say about how Harry perceives Karkaroff is as follows. Once again, I'm just going to quote directly from the book. This is on page 217 listeners. Karkaroff had a fruity, unctuous voice. (laughs) When he stepped into the light pouring from the front doors of the castle, they saw that he was tall and thin like Dumbledore, but his white hair was short and his goatee finishing in a small curl did not entirely hide his rather weak chin. So, here's what's happening
0: in these <laughs> books.
1: And again, we can, we can just assume that this is Harry's perspective because Harry has grown up quite sheltered. Well, we know what the Dursleys are like, so it's entirely plausible that Harry has grown up with a tremendous amount of internalized homophobia and hatred of things that are different, whether or not he recognizes that he has that. But essentially what's happening is uh, he's looking at Madame Maxine, and because she is a larger-than-average woman, he perceives her to be unnatural in a way that he does not with Hagrid. He loves Hagrid. Hagrid is wonderful. And Karkaroff, who is distinctly coded as a queer and effeminate man, Harry perceives him as fruity, unctuous, and with a weak chin.
0: Uh. <laughs> uh, is right. That's, yeah. That's all. That's all yeah, I there, want to there's say There's no that. beard hiding that weak chin, is there? <laughs> just a, just a curly goatee.
2: I would add to that list of characters who make Harry uncomfortable, Rita Skeeter. Right, who mm-hmm. who, when Harry first describes her, notes the um, market contradiction between how she dresses in a in a flamboyantly feminine way um, and yet has quite a sort of square-jawed face mm-hmm. And then later on, when she is shaking Dumbledore's hand, it explicitly says that she holds out one of her large mannish hands to Dumbledore. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no way of actually reading how she identifies in terms of gender as a character. All we can say is that she is, much as Karkaroff is coded as a gay man in his description, Rita Skeeter is very clearly being coded as trans in her description. And that these are codes being used by Harry as a narrator to register unnaturalness Mm -hmm, on the part mm -hmm. of... Characters who make him uncomfortable in some yeah. way.
1: And feeds into uh, and informs his deep distrust of them, mm-hmm. which then the book reinforces for us. So we learn that the book is sending us the message that effeminate men and trans women are not to be trusted. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Well, most of the Death Eaters are coded as particularly effeminate. As, oh, at least the male ones are. Lucius like, think Malfoy. about Lucius Malfoy and is... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Beautiful locks. Luscious. Oh, yes. Luscious indeed. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they are really kind of this slavish devotion and this sort of dandyish appearance mm-hmm. that the Death Eaters by and large seem to have. And really, Voldemort himself. Oh, yeah. And Tom Riddle is described as this very handsome, sort of mm-hmm. lush young man. And then Voldemort is this kind of. He's always depicted as having a very high pitched voice mm-hmm. and a very sort of like long fingered, slim hands and all of these kind of very just slinky terminology and partly <laughs> that's snake like, but partly there's kind of um, a performative aspect to mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. too. I find. Absolutely. So.
1: Yeah.
2: So there's one more thing I would like to add in this section of The Boy Who Narrated, which is we've talked a lot about Harry as an unreliable narrator and the sort of the way that the world is shaped through his perspective. I think this is the book where we start to get the clearest view of a very complex political world beyond Harry's perspective, Mm -hmm. where the book is starting to directly give us information that allows us to read something of the very complex messiness of the world beyond Hogwarts and is encouraging us to think it through in a way that Harry is not necessarily doing yet mm-hmm. right so like we've got more clearly the scene where Sirius sort of dismisses Ron and Harry and Hermione you know when he's talking about how how Crouch sort of became this villainous character in his passion for pursuing dark wizards right mm-hmm. and yeah. he starts mm-hmm. to say something about mm-hmm. how the presence of evil in the world can also turn people who think they're doing good Mm -hmm. towards Mm -hmm. a kind of darkness. He starts to say that. And then he's like, Oh, you're too young. And they're like, try us. Mm -hmm. Um, And they sort of want, they're starting to want more Mm -hmm. of that moral complexity. Mm -hmm. But in the scene where Harry sees those three memories of Dumbledore's of the trials in the, Pensive. Pensive. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. There's almost no commentary on those scenes at all. There's no interpretation for us by older characters. Dumbledore does very little contextualizing. We get a little bit of stuff being explained. Mm-hmm. But other than that, those scenes are just left there for the viewer to do with as they will. Yeah. So you get a very strong sense of them being something that Harry can see but not necessarily understand yet, mm-hmm. but there's so much complexity introduced in those scenes in terms of how a political body responds to the problem of evil. Yeah, the implication that um Ludo Bagman. Yeah, yeah. yeah that Ludo Bagman is is pardoned from his misdeeds because of his fame. Mm-hmm. You know the way that sort of personal response to individuals inflects what we perceive as villainy or the absence of villainy. Like there's a lot, those are really dense scenes and Mm -hmm. they're just, they're given to us as readers, but they're not parsed for us by our narrator. And I find that really interesting.
1: You know, what is really interesting about that though, is that they are framed by Dumbledore saying that he sometimes finds that this is a much easier way of encountering these memories because he's able to see patterns so stepping outside and becoming a kind of objective observer
2: mm-hmm.
1: makes comprehending the complexities of law and fame and celebrity and how those things sort of combine and uh, run up against each other. The fact that Dumbledore puts them outside of his body makes the complexities of those scenes,
2: so he's right, he's making okay. them easier to understand by externalizing them and simplifying them. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's what mm-hmm. he's doing, right? He's taking he's taking what is an incredibly complex situation, picking a few moments out of it, explicitly externalizing them from his own perspective to make them more readable, and it's very interesting that those mm-hmm. are the scenes that Harry gets to read.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that as narrative payoff, actually, for the remainder of the series, too. We see Harry sort of coming back to those memories as he encounters people who were in them later on, as he finds himself in a similar scenario later mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. So I think the way they're sort of laid out in this... I don't want to say objective state, but externalized state Mm -hmm. invites the reader to do that work of making patterns and Mm -hmm. finding... Sort of commonalities as you go. So it's sort of Harry kind of fades into the position of the reader in a different way there, Mm -hmm. in a way that I think is very effective for Mm -hmm. the later books in the series as well. Absolutely. Yeah, and part of that,
2: of Harry becoming aware of himself as a reader, is that this is one of the first moments in the books where Harry looks back on his own narrative unreliability in the past three books and comments Mm -hmm. explicitly on it, Mm -hmm. which is that he finds out what happened to Neville's parents in that scene with Dumbledore, and then he thinks back and wonders to himself why, having known Neville for three and a half years now, he's never expressed any curiosity about Neville's life or what has happened to him. Mm -hmm. And that becomes very clear to us that if Harry's not curious about something, we don't get to hear about it either. And Mm -hmm. this is the first moment where Harry's actually looked and said, like, wow, I have really not looked at this
0: person. It really kind of gives you a sense of all of the parallel stories that we're not getting and really encapsulates a 14 year old boy like they're very self-involved and (laughs) it's such a true bit of characterization and it's it's a good moment of self-realization I think that realization is is part of why we know Harry is a good guy because he does question himself about that he doesn't just sort of plow on in his self-involved sort of nature Mm -hmm. I mean he does but he's <laughs> aware he's becoming more aware of himself as a person among people yeah like the fact that he
1: takes responsibility for his for not knowing what neville's story is rather than being like well if it was important for neville to talk about it he would have talked about it mm-hmm. like so we don't we don't get that from harry we do get from harry this very generous spirit where he's like oh I've been really Mm self-involved. Okay. And then he keeps his word to Dumbledore and does Mm -hmm. not share Mm -hmm. that information with Ron and Hermione, which I think Mm -hmm. is really... It's also
2: interesting to read it against that earlier scene, which we talked about last episode, where Hagrid says to Harry, wow, everything really happens to you, Harry, doesn't it? (laughs) Oh, yeah. And then when you actually find out what happened to Neville, you're like, oh, no, everything doesn't happen to Harry. And then you get to the end of the book, and you're like, no, absolutely everything does not happen to Harry. Somebody else died. Mm -hmm. Like, things happen to people who are not Harry. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Just imagine growing up Draco Malfoy. Ooh. Oh,
1: Andrea. Hey. Hey, Andrea. You are literally better at teaching than every character in this book. So let's head down to potions class, our discussion of pedagogy at Hogwarts.
2: Here's the thing that I want to start with. And maybe it's only maybe we're only gonna talk about Moody in this book. Maybe we wanna talk we, about the others. But he's not but
0: Moody! Here's the thing
2: yeah. that blew my fucking mind is that Moody is so great as a teacher. He is so. He's so satisfying for me as a as a He. So one of the first scenes where you see him as a teacher is him turning Malfoy into a weasel <laughs> and, and bouncing him around the <laughs> hall, which is magical Um, and then when McGonagall comes in and her horror when she realizes that that is a student is beautiful to behold but then on the first day of class Moody says I've had a letter from Professor Lupin updating me on what you covered last year and I have designed my curriculum around filling in those gaps which is like oh okay so you are secretly a sociopath pretending to be a teacher, yet your lesson planning is better than any of the teachers at Hogwarts.
0: You still have reports and curriculum and a planned set of lessons. Like, Moody is, oh. Like,
1: that is some serious dedication to not being found out on Barty Crouch. Barty Crouch is the best teacher. (laughs) Yeah. I think
2: yeah. maybe Barty Crouch, were he not a sociopath, would have had a calling.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, in course. pedagogy. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I do, but okay, so I just... <laughs> I agree with you that, I agree with both of you that he is an exceptionally good teacher in most ways, but I do have a sticky note here that says WTF with, an, with a question mark. <laughs> and it is because Professor Moody announces to the class that he's going to be uh, putting the imperious curse on each of them in turn (laughs) because, and I quote, Dumbledore wants you taught what it feels like, says Moody. And like, I... So we have lots of questions about Dumbledore's running of the school. I feel confident that at no point given our understanding of Dumbledore as a character, I feel confident that at no point would he be like, hey, hey Moody, could you put all of the students under the Imperius curse at least once so that they get a sense of what it's like? Agree to disagree.
2: Because in a later book, Dumbledore has Snape
1: like trying to control Harry's mind so that Harry will become experienced and not losing control no he's teaching him occlumency which is not the same thing as asking snape to put the imperious curse on harry but we know that if you have
2: experience that if you have enough experience having the imperious curse put on you you will eventually learn to break it and that in Mm -hmm. fact that's an incredibly vital skill for harry to have so this isn't bad
1: pedagogy
0: i think it's just hands-on pedagogy like it's very method in its pedagogy
1: it can be both practical, useful, and <laughs> method. It is nevertheless not plausible because it's illegal. Like using the Imperious Curse earns you a life sentence in Azkaban. That means that if there are 30 students in this classroom and Moody puts each of them under the Imperious Curse once, Dumbledore has just asked one of his teachers to commit Thirty crimes were thirty life sentences in Azkaban, and I just don't think that that is plausible. I,
2: I absolutely believe Dumbledore would ask him to do that. I absolutely do. Dumbledore is batshit insane. Dumbledore is
0: his own law. Dumbledore he, is above the law. He yes, is yes. a law. That's explicit at the end of the book. He's okay. on the Wizen gamut. Like okay. he's, I don't know what that means. It's. It's the, like, the most wizardy wizard. <laughs> oh, he's a very
2: wizardy wizard.
1: But what is the difference between saying I want you to put each of the students under the Imperius curse and I want you to put each I want each of the students to experience the Cruciatus curse? He obviously can't get them each to experience because a they Khadabra. very clearly Attention. established that
2: the um, Imperius curse is something that you can break through willpower. There's nothing you can do about the Cruciatus curse. This is the only one that some experience of having it is going to equip you in the future to resisting it. I can't resist the other two. I'm
0: going to call on my experience as one-third of Was a lawyer it? right now. I think we're dealing with, in criminal the concept of mens rea. Where? If <laughs> the intention to commit a crime accompanies the actions that commit the crime, that is actually the offense. But here, in a learning environment, you might be going through the actions, but you don't... Moody, scare quotes around Moody, the instructor, does not have the intention of actually controlling and harming his students. So that takes away the unforgivable part of the crime, Ex- arguably. Except that he does because he's actually Barty Crouch Jr., right? Well, but we don't know that at the time. So what you are saying is, is that he's doing the manslaughter equivalent of okay. an imperious curse? It's okay. barely barely a summary conviction come on
1: so we will just have to agree to disagree and that's
0: fine fine i don't need to
1: be right all of the time i would just like to remind all of the listeners that i'm the one who's the better reader (laughs) she's not wrong about
2: (laughs) that i don't know if you know this andrea But forbiddenness is a social construct usually deployed to control the masses. Why don't we talk about it in the Forbidden Forest? Our segment on power and those who are oppressed by it. We are eventually going to lead into a conversation about house elves, which is one of the things that we promised that we would talk about last episode in this episode but in order to sort of contextualize that conversation within some of the larger concerns of the book andrew is going to start out by giving us a little uh,
0: a little labor primer on the harry potter world yeah we're gonna get marxist up in here for a little bit and i'm sorry So I asked to be on this episode specifically because I remembered this was before I reread anything, so purely on gut instinct, I remembered the House Elf labor plot being a driving force in this story. And it is, but not as much as I remembered it being. Mm. What I remember as being a really concentrated plot is in fact spread out over mm. three books in alternating interesting and annoying kind of ways. Mm-hmm. I got to admit, I don't really feel for the house elves in a big way. And partly that's, their depiction is really groveling and they're just unpleasant. But that's my, we can unpack that as we go. Yeah. Because that's what the book wants you to do. That's what the book wants you to do. But coming at this, I was really interested in... What I think is the central question, what is the mode of production of the wizarding world? Mm -hmm. Where are we at? If people are walking around in robes and hats and conjuring things out of midair, but also existing side by side in a modern capitalist London, what is going on? And I think this is a good book to kind of begin unpacking that. We kind of have moved beyond the initial sense of wonder and I really think... Prisoner of Azkaban and Goblet of Fire start getting us into the operations of how this world works Mm -hmm. in a different way that then get built on as the characters mature. And labor comes into this one in a big way because this is the first time I think we get really clear figurations of work and the possibilities of jobs and careers and what people do when they leave hogwarts so we actually get explicit career advice here this is Mm -hmm. the first time it comes up from fake moody Mm -hmm. oddly that harry should be considering work as an auror and hermione Hermione also Mm -hmm. should consider work as an auror so it's Mm -hmm. not gender specific and Ron is there too. So
2: and um and of course we have the whole important through plot of Fred and George and mm-hmm. their their explorations and gambling, mm-hmm. their anxiety yeah. about money, um and their strong sense of of needing to know what they're going to do beyond the end of school. The need, Daddy. you know, for Harry to help them find a career. We get introduced mm-hmm. to Bill and Charles as the first Char- Charles. Charles. <laughs> <laughs> very, that was very mm-hmm. formal. Yes, very formal. For Bill the and Charlie as yes. the sort of uh, the elder Weasley children actually yes. arrive on the scene. Yeah, mm-hmm. and we get to see their careers. And they're
0: so cool. They've got the coolest careers. Guys,
2: yeah. Bill or Charlie? Who would you choose? Bill,
0: Charlie, Dragon, Char- Charlie. Man. I'm stockier. I like you. a stocky man. I mean, I like
2: I mean based man... on my understanding of Marcel's chosen partner, Bill. Obviously, <laughs>
1: yeah. Also, I like a man who's comfortable around Jews, and oh. Bill works with goblins, and we know that this series of books yes, only has yeah. goblins for definitely. semis. Yeah. Yes.
2: Whereas I prefer a man who's comfortable around monstrous females, <laughs> and it's clearly established that Charlie is really comfortable around huge, scaly monster women.
0: Yeah, he can get right on those, ride them. <laughs> All over the skies. My Talking about the relationship of education and labor, I think we get some inclination into um, the structure of the wizarding world as a whole. And of course that makes sense. It's a school novel, so of course we're coming at it through that angle. And I think given the ages of the characters and the way that everyone seems to proceed directly into um, their working life right after leaving school, mm-hmm. we're kind of getting the sense that we're not really operating on... Like there's no higher education, there's no wizarding university as far as I can tell. Everyone no, there's no sign
2: of one. There's no yeah.
0: sign of one, there's no charm school, there's nothing like that. What I think is happening here is we're working with a traditional apprenticeship model of labor. And this is really evident when you start looking at the ages of the characters. So our main characters are now in their fourth year, so they're right in the middle. Mm-hmm. And they're about 14, which is the traditional age of entering into your kind of chosen line of work, your chosen craft, and becoming an apprentice. And your years as an apprentice would last until you're 21, traditionally. So that's seven years. So if we're getting an apprenticeship model, this suggests that we're in a pre-industrial model of work. Mm -hmm. And the apprenticeship model of labor was something that really came undone with early factory labor because you had children entering the workforce in a different sort of way. And you had this breakdown of personal relationships in favor of purely economic ones. And I think what we see in the world of Harry Potter is this kind of continuation of relationships of fealty, relationships of custom, beyond purely money and economic relationships. Mm-hmm. I think we can kind of describe most of those things as very non-capitalist. Mm-hmm. So if we move into the wizarding world, looking at the basis of initiation into the labor force as through this apprenticeship model, we begin to see the way Rowling has sort of constructed the wizarding world, which runs parallel to the modern sort of capitalist world, as this sort of quasi-late medieval sort of structure. Mm-hmm. And now, I will admit, you guys don't do research, but I had to pull out my marks <laughs> and go through the German ideology and kind of look at successive modes of production to kind of nail this. And I think what we're looking at in the wizarding world is the sort of phase of late feudalism that coincides with urbanism. So we don't see the peasantry. We don't see large feudal manners happening. Mm-hmm. Arguably, Hogwarts itself is a remnant of this, but you got to dig deep for that. But what we do see is a distinct urban marketplace. Diagon Alley is Mm -hmm. definitely operating as this place. We've got points of exchange and kind of small level entrepreneurship, but what we really have is craft labor. So Mm -hmm. we have things sort of structured around one-to-one relationships of production and exchange, and we kind of have this idea that there's a customary way of doing things Mm -hmm. so this without being explicit in the book we're really talking about guild labor Mm -hmm. so we're talking about precursors to larger scale economic organization we have a merchant class which I think Marcel is going to want to talk about a little bit more when we talk about exchange and the goblins and Gringotts Mm -hmm. but we don't have a manufacturing sector we don't have the sourcing of raw materials for the colonies. We don't have anything like that. So No colonies at all. No colonies at all. So I have chosen to read the mode of production of The Wizarding World as a sort of imperfect modernity, as a kind of trappings of the modern world seep through, but it's still a profoundly pre-modern,
2: mm-hmm.
0: late medieval sort of world yeah. in very much all of the way it's sort of structured and works.
2: And one of the signs of that pre-modernity, I think, really comes through. This leaves us to the question of the house elves, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That that we don't see factory labor, um, Mm -hmm. but we do see a form of... Now, I'd been thinking of it as slavery, but we talked in the conversation before hitting record about the possibility of thinking of it as serfdom or as chattel. But whatever the relationship of the house elves is to the successful maintenance of... The wizarding world as a whole, I think, is really important. And it's Mm -hmm. not a coincidence, I think, that the reality of what the house elves are doing and the reality of their previously totally hidden presence in Hogwarts, Mm -hmm. that they're performing a kind of labor that had been perceived as magic by the students Mm -hmm. in their early Mm -hmm. years, I think it's no coincidence that that shows up in this book where we are also being introduced to issues of labor and capitalism and work and career for the first time.
0: Absolutely. And the house elves come in on the side of domestic labor. Mm -hmm. This is not the labor of capitalist production. Mm -hmm. This is not factories. There are no factories in the wizarding world. There's no no accumulation at any level. Arguably, every wizard has the means of production in his own hand, Mm -hmm. his or her own hand, like I'm not sure what the limits of what a wand can do, but it seems to be able to pull in any material needed wow. to make any material. The point being that when we are introduced to the house elves, it's in a very domestic context, <laughs> and it's in this particular kind of labor that's the labor of reproduction, not the labor mm-hmm. of production. Mm-hmm. The house elves are not out helping Madame Malkin sew ropes. They're no. not helping make wands. They're not brewing, butter, beer, whatever they're doing. They're purely in the home. So I have a
1: question about the function of domestic labor then in terms of the house elves um, and then our other major focal point of domestic labor, which is Mrs. Weasley. Mm -hmm. Um, So when we were talking before we started recording... Um, We were talking about the, the moment in the book when Mrs. Weasley and Bill are having lunch with Harry and Ron and Hermione before the final task, and Mrs. Weasley makes that very simple but poignant statement about how it's so nice not to have to cook for once. I feel like the function of that statement is really to remind us that all of this domestic work that is so disturbing to Hermione because it goes unpaid and because the house elves don't seem to have any choice in the matter and because they are so eerily happy to do it. It's exactly the same work that Missus Weasley is doing for her family. So I'm, I guess. So I guess what I'm curious about is how are we supposed to read in the context of labor the work that Missus Weasley does in relation to the work that the house elves do if the house elves are
0: chattel mm-hmm. yeah in the muggle world all the work done by house elves is done by electrical appliances yes. so we're living in the 1920s 30s 40s there and in some ways you know that does what those appliances did was replace domestic servants mm-hmm. and so left the single housewife able to control all of those things And so if we just imagine technology and magic as sort of loose equivalents, which maybe we'll get into later, the house elves exist because it's cheaper to pay house elves than to buy enchanted objects that do these things. Presumably.
2: You don't pay them. So it's always going to be cheaper.
0: But you have to feed them. Maybe.
2: Do you? I don't think you ever see a house elf eat.
0: That's a good question.
2: Like, I think that they are an entirely cost-free source of labor. That's problematic. (laughs) So this brings us into, for me, one of the things that's really interesting that's happening in this book is the issue of race is emerging in very clear Mm -hmm. ways through this book. So we've got the house elves and the very messy way in which they map against uh, human histories of slavery and labor. Mm -hmm. And are we talking here about a question of Class and serfdom. Are we talking about forms of very, very early colonialism that are colonialism nonetheless. That result in the sort of systems of, you know, differential class in the UK. Or are we talking about a sort of slavery model? Like that's very hard to read mm-hmm. in the books, obviously. Because as we talked about in the last episode, a lot of the issues of race and violence and oppression are being displaced onto Mm -hmm. other kinds Mm -hmm. of characters. Mm -hmm. But what's really important here is that, so the house elves, while all of the authoritative characters in the books seem to, to some degree, disagree with Hermione. And I want to get into the discussion of Hermione and her function as a sort of white feminist Mm -hmm. later on when we talk about her. But um, everybody seems to disagree. But the house elves are at this stage in the books, these fundamentally sympathetic figures. So Mm -hmm. if they are quasi-racialized others, the ways in which they're being racialized is in a sort of non-dangerous way. Mm -hmm. And I think that their counterpoints in this book are the giants. Yes. Mm -hmm. Very, very explicitly, because the house elves are very small, They're non-threatening, and they seem to be predisposed towards compliant behavior. Sure,
0: they're house elves. They're not field elves. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
2: Explicitly linked to the domestic. The giants are too big, too violent, missing. So the giants are so far outside the domestic sphere that we don't even know where they are anymore. Mm -hmm. And the existence of giants in the world is a sort of object of fear so there's this sort of tension between the monstrosity of the giants and the sort of infantilization mm-hmm. of the house elves mm-hmm. that's going on Dumbledore is always in these early stages of the books Dumbledore's always on the side of Wright, right right mm-hmm. um, he's this sort of like radical non-racist white subject yeah and Dumbledore is the one who hires house elves he's the only mm-hmm. person who would hire a house elf and he is the person who stands up for giants. Dumbledore is attempting at Hogwarts to create a model multicultural society. Yeah. That becomes particularly clear to us in this book because mm-hmm. when we are introduced to the other wizarding schools, they are very clearly monocultural mm-hmm. in a way that Hogwarts is not. Hogwarts mm-hmm. is characterized by diversity because it has four schools. Mm-hmm. The other two schools, Durmstrang is a Slytherin school. Mm-hmm. Beaubaton is a Ravenclaw school. This is clarified for us through the clothing that they wear, through the tables that they choose to sit at. Through the nature of their headmasters there's a clear differentiation being made that's obviously a sort of british argument that within the european union they are you know they are the most multicultural nation
0: with their colonial problem in a way that other european nations have not
2: but and then right at the end of the book you have dumbledore standing up and saying voldemort's source of power is based on turning people against each other based on their differences And Hogwarts is going to be a model against that. The Hogwarts is going to be a space where, you know, difference in language and belief and background will not be a problem. He stands up and he says, Lord Voldemort's gift for spreading discord and enmity is very great. We can fight it only by showing an equally strong bond of friendship and trust. Differences of habit and language are nothing at all if our aims are identical and our hearts are open. So here's an important thing about this kind of discourse of multiculturalism that it bases on having racialized others who can be brought into the fold of the the good, compassionate, civilized, multicultural world and racialized others who cannot, who are beyond the pale. And that differentiation is incredibly important. It always is in the logic of 20th century, 21st century multiculturalism. And that is getting played out for us so clearly the house elves are incorporable the giants are incorporable the dementors are not the dementors are a species that is fundamentally evil that should not be allowed to exist that is by their very nature associated with the dark lord they are beyond the pale they are non-redeemable and they must be destroyed by the good people of the multicultural, civilized society. But
0: they're still being used by that society in particular roles. Mm-hmm. We need someone to guard our prison. Hey, there's a bunch of dementors mm-hmm. around.
2: Right? Like, this logic is always at work when you're drawing the lines of who gets to be part of your utopian, multicultural society and who doesn't. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Who gets to be in the pamphlet, who doesn't.
1: So I'm going to I'm gonna jump in and say that I think that this is going to become increasingly important as we move on to the fifth book because if we remember... There is that enormous golden statue in the Ministry yes. of Magic that quite literally manifests all of these.
2: Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Commence Obliviate in five, four, three, two, one.
1: Complicated relationships and that are destroyed. Spoilers! Spoiler alert! <laughs> Mention of the
2: statue is a spoiler. I didn't remember it. It's on the
1: book cover. <laughs> Who looks at book covers? <laughs> you do. We had a whole conversation about it. Harry <laughs> Anna. So, anyway, my point being that I feel like this is this is just the beginning of what's going to become a really large and rich conversation about the way in which multiculturalism is very problematically represented by the Ministry of Magic. So I think that we should stop here and pick this
0: up yeah. in yeah. book five. Yeah. She means there's been no jokes for twenty minutes and that's a problem.
2: Just before we leave the Forbidden Forest. Oh wait, what's that? Over there in the shadows? Do 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 I do watch?
1: As I promised in the last episode, I will follow up on the situation with the goblins in this book, because again, I repeat, there are no Jews, but there are oodles of goblins. And the goblins really only appear in two significant scenes in this book. And so in the first book, we had them cackling over a sack of gold while every other (laughs) wizard and witch was like fearing for their lives. (laughs) And in the second scene, they are um, terrorizing Ludo Bagman, who, as we will come to learn, owes them a shitload of money and a pound of flesh. It's Team Shylock, so they're in the three broomsticks with Ludo Bagman. I just want to point out the way that Harry describes them, which is that they were all watching him in silence through their dark slanting eyes. Mm-hmm. I just, <laughs> I just wanted, I just wanted to point that out. The other thing that I think is important to point out is that. Ludo Bagman's racist. Oh, he's Ludo a Bagman is for sure racist. Trash. The way he like he's a jock
2: them. is. Super. Like He also has a description of the trouble of talking to goblins mm-hmm. because they speak gobbledygook. Right, yeah. yeah. So he
1: says, their English isn't too good. It's like being back with all the Bulgarians at the Quidditch World Cup. But at least they used sign language another human could recognize. This lot keep gabbling in gobbledygook. And I only know one word of gobbledygook. Bladvak. It means pickaxe. I don't like to use it in case they think I'm threatening them. He gave a short booming laugh. So if we think about like the way that the term Bladvak sounds, it that sounds, sounds pretty
0: Slavic. To it me. sounds
1: Slavic. It also sounds a little Yiddish, <laughs> like it's definitely got some like German sounding roots to it. It's just a if it had been something like Umpa, <laughs> yeah, or like book like sure. different phonemes, yeah. yeah. But the fact that it's got like these hard consonant sounds. It's very disturbingly coded as Yiddish. The goblins are once again very troublingly coded as Semitic. I mean, I say once again they're just all they just they're just hundred percent one hundred percent of the time, and again, they only we only ever encounter them in these early books when they are either um, collecting money or attempting to collect money. Yeah, so the fact that they are hounding Bagman for the money that he owes them, and apparently also that pound of flesh, um, is just continuously disturbing to me. Yeah. And that's all I want to say yeah, about it. Yeah, as Goblins. it should be, yes. Yeah. I bet if Andrea could be any character in the Harry Potter series, she'd be Hermione Granger. No? Yes? Either way, it's time for Granger Danger!
2: There's a couple of points about Hermione that we want to make at this point as we've encountered her in the second half of the book. The first one that I want to mention, and this is this is a passing point about Hermione, but it's just one of the many things that I love about her as a character... At the Yule Ball, she demonstrates the fact that she is aware of the power of performing a particular kind of identifiable socially approved femininity. Mm -hmm. She knows that's a powerful thing. She knows it's going to allow her to move through the world in easier ways. She knows that she can manipulate her appearance to adopt that when it is necessary. But in no way in the books does she internalize that as part of her value as a person. Mm -hmm. So that the The very next day, she is done with it. She's like, that was a pain in the ass. I'm not doing that anymore. It does not change her as a character. She remains somebody who is dedicated to knowledge and learning and her devotion to her friends and her loyalty as a character and her mistrust of people who abuse their power. And none of that changes because she had, like, a fun makeover scene at the ball. (laughs) She just, like, did her hair nice, a more pretty dress. People were like, wow, you look really nice. And she was like, cool. If you already liked me, I'm glad you think I look nice. If you didn't like me before, fuck you. I don't care what you think.
0: Mm -hmm. End of story. It's just dress robes to her. She can put it on. She can take it off. It doesn't matter. And I love that. It's a wonderful model.
2: Yeah. But, okay. So we have two more more serious, brief conversations to have about Hermione. So the first one is that we need to talk about Hermione and Spew. Spew. So I think it's just important to nod at this point towards the ways that white women and white feminism in particular has this history of sort of constructing itself as a movement, as on the side of other political movements Same. in a way that has been critiqued by people of color, by indigenous people, mm-hmm. um, by working class activists as being a sort of form of white appropriation that is... Uh-huh. White middle-class feminists often want to equate their being women with other forms of oppression in a way that elides the differences between different forms of oppression and that I think deliberately elides the kinds of privilege you hold as a white middle-class woman via being white and middle-class.
0: Certainly, there's no intersectionality in this politics. No, But I think... Hermione is working with a particularly British kind of first-wave feminism. Mm -hmm. She's got her badges. She's got her acronyms. She's got her banners. She's knitting hats for them. She's a suffragette. She is a suffragette. Mm -hmm. She is a goddamn Pankhurst, And I will hear no argument to the contrary. So then a, a question that I think we have to grapple
1: with then is... Reconciling Hermione's championing of house elves and promoting their welfare in contrast to what they tell her that they want, along with all of the powerful men who are telling her that she's wrong. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because as a feminist and as an intersectional feminist, I'm really conflicted about who is correct. When men tell me that I'm wrong about something, I If they are white men, I tend to assume that they are more wrong (laughs) than literally anything I could ever be.
0: They're the wrongest. They're the
1: wrongest. wrongest. But Hermione is in fact failing to hear what the house elves are telling her. She's She's aggressively imposing her politics on them. Absolutely. Her failure to either listen to their words or read their body language is really disturbing when we think about her as a champion for this cause,
0: mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's treated as a joke too mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's she's not even taken seriously within the narrative. There's some space given to her airing her viewpoint, but mm-hmm. the fact yeah. that the house elves themselves are rejecting it is a comic point mm-hmm. for for the story,
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely. so when when she encounters Dobby and Dobby tells her how much time he gets off and how much um, Dumbledore is paying him, Hermione's response is, that's not very much. And then Dobby's like, oh, that's, please, that's plenty. That's crazy. That's like, I don't want to get too big for my britches here. Like, that's all I need to get by.
2: (laughs) I mean, Andrew used the phrase, before we started recording, Andrew used the phrase false consciousness, Mm -hmm. right? The idea that it's Hermione's exclusive job as their white savior to liberate them from their state of false consciousness <laughs> mm-hmm. and make them understand that the life that they think is making them happy and fulfilled is in fact a form of oppression. And that once they understand the world, as she understands the world, they will want what she thinks they ought to want. Mm-hmm. And that is troubling, mm-hmm. especially considering the complex history of white feminism and its complicity with colonialism. But at the same time, all of the other, white men in the book saying to Hermione, they're just happy being slaves. It's what they want. Mm
0: -hmm. They like it. They
2: like serving us.
0: That's ridiculous. The fact that they're all so united in that statement is, I think, a clear sign that it is Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. grossly wrong.
1: It's just horrible. But I wonder if what is happening in this book is that Hermione's white feminism is coming up against this kind of white patriarchal conservatism, which is that everything is good already, we don't need to change it, and that both of those two things are necessarily problematic because neither of them are actually true. Mm -hmm. They're both fundamentally wrong, and that will become apparent in the later books when we start to get in a little bit deeper with the way that the Ministry of Magic organizes Mm
0: -hmm. non-human magical creatures absolutely and let's not forget that hermione is pulling on her muggle origins in a modern liberal democratic state Mm -hmm. she's essentially time traveled back into this late medieval feudal situation Mm -hmm. she should be counting herself lucky that she can participate at all as a witch true yeah and so i think the prejudices she's up against are just not even comprehensible to her. Mm -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm. So the final point that I want to make about Hermione is my reading of the final pages of this book. So, This book has a very strange climax, right? I mean, we have. This is, I think, pretty characteristic of Witch Please that our discussion of the second half of this book has at almost no point touched upon the dramatic climax in which Harry (laughs) has his first ever confrontation and magical battle with Voldemort, because we're like not particularly interested in that model of sort of heroic masculinity, so we're just gonna circumvent that.
0: Zero women in that scene. No.
2: His mom was there.
0: Was Bellatrix there even?
2: No, she's still in Azkaban.
1: Yeah. Bertha Jorkins was also there. Aww, yeah. okay.
2: Yeah, you had a couple God. of dead women.
0: <laughs> but those are the best kind of women, am I right? <sighs>
2: uh, so that scene happens, and it's all very dramatic, but the book makes it very clear to us that that is not the climax of this book right like the way that it's structured in the narrative that's not the climax the climax happens in the scene after harry has gone to sleep and then wakes up by the sound of fighting and dumbledore and um cornelius fudge are having an argument about whether or not voldemort has in fact returned Mm -hmm. that's very interesting that the way that the the climax is situated is to be not a question of the actual return of this force of evil, but a question of whether or not we will believe in the existence Mm -hmm. of that force of evil. So that climax happens. Cornelius Fudge leaves. Harry has a near emotional breakdown in the arms of Mrs. Weasley. And that moment is interrupted by the sound of Hermione slamming her hand against the window and then apologizing. And we don't find out until later that what Hermione has done in that scene is successfully figure out that Rita Skeeter was an animagus and catch her. And that she is now holding her prisoner in a jar for a period of time that she has decided is appropriate until she has convinced Rita Skeeter to cease to circulate her false information. If this is the climax of the book, then it's incredibly important that Cornelius Fudge does not believe that Voldemort has come back because Harry is the only witness. And Rita Skeeter has been spreading false rumor that Harry is mentally unstable. Mm -hmm. So Rita Skeeter is the central villain of this book. Because the climax Mm -hmm. is about the believability of the return of the Dark Lord, Mm -hmm. not about the Dark Lord himself. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, the reason why... Voldemort's return is not believed is because Harry's not believed. And that's because of Rita Skeeter. Mm-hmm. So the actual hero of this book is not Harry who confronts Voldemort with his wand. It's Hermione who successfully identifies the real danger in this moment and successfully subdues it.
1: I think that was very well put. Yeah. I'm sold. I'm completely sold. And it really, and it really fits in with um, what we were talking about in the last episode in terms of um, the function of narrative and meta-narrative in this book, right? This book is entirely about questioning the printed word as a source of authority. Mm-hmm, right? yeah,
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I do think this series as a whole sort of functions, like Voldemort is the big bad, but every individual segment has a secondary mm-hmm. villain, totally. and it's something that obscures the pure evil that voldemort is so this time it's rumor and celebrity obscure that mm-hmm. later on we get different versions of that yeah
2: i mean there's something about the end of the book that i think is trying to convince us that the real secondary villain in this book is Barty crutch jr mm. but uh, you can't be the real villain no. if it takes 10 pages of backstory to explain what you've been doing mm-hmm. right the real villain of the piece has to have actually been there through the whole thing the real yeah. villain of this book is rita Skeeter. last, dear listeners, it is time for final revisions. And this week, Andrea has some questions for both of us.
0: Thank you. And forgive me, dear listeners, because because I've been brought in for one segment and not the entire run of the series, my question is a little bit wide-ranging. The first thing that occurred to me is most verbal spellcraft seems to be undertaken in Latin, which makes sense because if we're in a kind of uh which if we are in a version of the medieval world Latin is the kind of lingua franca. It's the oh, scholarly yeah. language that works everywhere. Mm-hmm. So I buy that. However, we also see in this book and in later books that it is possible to develop new spells
2: mm-hmm. as we
0: go. This comes into play in the Half-Blood Prince, but we see it in other kind of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, spellcraft is not a static body of knowledge. It's ever-changing.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's made clear to us that Voldemort created the spell that brings him back to power.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And so, and presumably neologisms come into play in mm-hmm. spellcraft. So, is there such a thing as vernacular spellcraft?
2: So, I'm a big fan of Hilary Mantel's mm-hmm. series of books. Two exist now, will fall in the second one, whose name I can never remember. Bring Up the Bodies? Bring Up.
1: Bring Out your dead.
2: I always think bring it's called Bring Out Your Dead. Your <laughs> but I think it's called Bring Up the Bodies. Um. Bring up the It's a wonderful series. And she's looking at this moment that is so applicable to the Harry Potter books because it's a moment of transition to a... from a feudal to a sort of proto-capitalist society, well, that aligns with a moment of transition from Catholicism into Protestantism,
0: and from Latin to the vernacular. From Latin to
2: the vernacular, exactly. And that's exactly. a moment
0: of printing. Let's and that's a moment get our of print. print history. Up in it's it.
2: all about the vernacular. Is about the production of print that the people have access to, mm-hmm. um, and it's about so the Latin spells are spells that have existed for a long time that are passed down to students that are encoded um, in books that they. Are not allowed to own, that they're not necessarily allowed to check out of the library. Most forms of print that are not not explicitly pedagogical are incredibly limited in their circulation in this book or in this series. And the Latin is linked to that. Latin is linked to authority, is linked to history, is linked to control. But we see That powerful wizards concoct their own spells and that when they concoct them, they concoct them in the vernacular. Mm -hmm. Because when Voldemort creates this arguably incredibly powerful spell to bring himself back into power, it is in the vernacular, Mm -hmm. right? It is just in English. It's just in English, right? He's just saying what he's doing. So it becomes in that moment... Not the language, not the words, not the history that matters, but what's behind them. Mm -hmm. Which is an incredibly Protestant moment. And that's really interesting when we see that the first model of vernacular magic that's resistant to this sort of old, ossified, passing down of controlled, Latinate knowledge is shown to us through the workings of the villain of the book
1: Mm -hmm. like that's Mm -hmm.
2: that I will have to think about for a while because that is complicated
1: to that I would add that if we think about the types of magic that the house elves are able to perform and they perform those kinds of magic uh, without wands So we are given to understand that they have not been taught how to do magic by wizards. They have their own form of magic, but many of the magical abilities that they possess are equivalent to the types of magical abilities that wizards have. Mm -hmm. I would argue that that suggests to us that magic is a kind of pre-linguistic construct Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) that exists among multiple different species and races and peoples and and, um, nationalities, etc. And so I would extrapolate from that that it's not just Latin that these spells are constructed in. It's just that those spells are the ones that this particular school has inherited Mm. over centuries of time um, and has been teaching to its students. So that's why they're so common. I mean, if Hogwarts is the biggest school of witchcraft and wizardry. It makes sense that all of those people who attended... The only one in Britain. The only one in Britain. Yes. Okay. So it makes sense then that all of the people in Britain who attended that school used those same spells Mm. and the same roots of spells, Mm -hmm. whereas other regions would have their own magical traditions... But if we assume that magic is pre-linguistic, you can still do the same kinds of magic and perform the same types of spells They don't all necessarily come from the same linguistic source. I
0: mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. I like that very much.
1: Yeah. And that that does the
2: same work of differentiating the word from power. Mm-hmm. Right. Of saying yeah. that, for example, if we're thinking about the sort of circulation of religion and it's divorcing from these sources of sort of Catholic power, mm-hmm. that's saying that faith itself is does not need to be fundamentally attached to a particular language and to particular yes. authorities who pass that down in certain ways, that it can absolutely be spread via the vernacular, because the vernacular are multiple equally valid ways of accessing something that exists outside of any particular representation of it. Yeah. Thank you dear listeners for joining us for episode 7B of Witch Please. The rest of our episodes are available on our beautiful Trevor Chow Fraser Hi, how are you doing? designed website, owitchplease.ca. Of course, you can also subscribe through iTunes and leave us a rating or a review while you're at it. It will change our opinion of you forever. Yay! Speaking of changing our opinions on things, don't forget to tweet at us at please. And while you're wasting your time on the internet, also check out our Jason Purcell curated Tumblr Oh, whichplease.tumblr.com.
1: Now, as always, we are deeply grateful to Trevor Chow Fraser, our erstwhile tech support and the robot of our hearts. Hi. And, of course, enormous thanks to our guest Andrea Hazenbank. You can follow her at Proletarian Arts on Twitter if you want to learn more about radical print and social justice. And special thanks to everyone who's tweeted at us. We're secretly recording this episode only days after the last one because I'm selfishly going away to Europe for three weeks where I'm going to look for witches and wizards. So we don't have a new list of tweeters, but there were probably a bunch of you and you're probably all great. <laughs> Our next episode will be another mini that I'll be recording while Hannah is selfishly away in Montreal. So stay tuned for that. And until then...